Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 160 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a 61-year-old mother of six and grandmother of six who is among the most powerful, influential, and controversial people working in television today. An executive producer and star of the e-reality series Keeping Up with the Kardashians and its various spinoffs, as well as the momager, as in mother and manager, of the people who appear opposite her in them, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and Rob Kardashian, and Kendall and Kylie Jenner. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Kris Jenner. Whatever you think about Keeping Up with the Kardashians or the Kardashians and Jenners themselves, you have to admire the entrepreneurial spirit and success of Kris, who, as recently as a decade ago, was known, if at all, as the ex-wife of the attorney Robert Kardashian, a former best friend of Nicole Brown Simpson prior to her murder in 1994, and the wife of the Olympic gold medalist-turned-motivational speaker Bruce Jenner. What has happened over the years since is nothing short of remarkable. Robert died of esophageal cancer in 2003. Bruce and Chris divorced in 2014, just a year before Bruce went public as Caitlyn, And in between, in 2007, a year after Kim's sex tape attracted widespread attention, Chris partnered with Ryan Seacrest to produce a show about her family, which quickly became a phenomenon. Now in its 13th season and seen by people in 160 countries around the world, it recently aired its 195th episode, averages about 1.5 million viewers per episode, and has made Jenner and her kids the most famous and highly paid subjects of a reality TV show in history quite apart from the millions they earn in endorsements. Today, they all are household names and faces, because Chris imagined that was possible and made it so. Over the course of our conversation at Chris's Hidden Hills home, where much of Keeping Up With The Kardashians is filmed, she and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How a girl from a working-class family in San Diego wound up a member of L.A. society, married at just 22 and a mother of four at just 30. How she was impacted by the murder of her dear friend and the trial of the century that followed, which divided her and her ex-husband and which she witnessed every day from the courtroom. How she began to hone her business skills after her marriage to Bruce and then applied them in the wake of the brouhaha over Kim's sex tape. How keeping up with the Kardashians is made and impacts her and her family's day-to-day life. Why she thinks so many people passionately love or hate the show and what it stands for and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I think you're one of the most fascinating people in this business, so it's a great chance to pick your brain. And, oh, thanks uh, for coming. Of course. To begin with, can you set the scene? Where are we right now? We're sort of in the belly of the beast, right? Yeah, well, we're at my house in Hidden Hills, and this is where we film Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And most of my kids, all of my kids live in about a one mile radius of this house, everyone except for Kendall. So yeah, this is where it all happens. (laughs) So where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in San Diego, California. And my mom was always a working mom. And she raised us as just really teaching us to be really strong women and that we can do anything that we set our minds to. And so she worked in La Jolla, California at a candle shop that my grandmother opened. My grandmother opened the second candle shop ever in the state of California, second to Carmel. And she was really proud of that and worked there for 40 years. She had her own store right in the heart of La Jolla where there's an amazing tourist Mm -hmm community and just a wonderful community in general with super nice people. And we met so many friends and my mom's lived there almost her whole entire adult life. And how about your father? What did he do? So, well, my dad was an engineer, my real dad. Mm -hmm. He worked most of the time at Convair in San Diego, Mm -hmm. building parts for Boeing and whatnot. And he passed away in a car accident when I was about 17 My mom was married to an amazing man who we called dad as well, Mm -hmm. named Harry Shannon. And they got married when I was 13. You know, you've got a big brood. How many did you come from? Two. There were two of us, my sister and I. Close in age? Three years apart. Three years apart. Yeah. How would you describe what what sort of a a kid you were? Were you the 
popular girl, the nerdy girl. What was it for you? I was probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I wore glasses in the fourth grade that I was devastated about. (laughs) I was a Girl Scout and a brownie. I was proud of that. And I went to summer camp and my mom made us feel like we could have anything that we worked for. So if I wanted to go to camp, I, you know, ran around the neighborhood selling cookies and, you know, doing things like that to try to get the things that I wanted. I saved my money. I was babysitting, you know, as much as I could to be able to buy this beautiful green Schwinn bicycle (laughs) that I'll never forget. And I actually had it up until about 1996. I just kept it and kept redoing it and like a vintage car. And then I decided it was way too vintage, so I gave it away. But anything I ever wanted, I had to work really hard for. But I learned the value of like saving my money and trying to make something happen and being entrepreneurial. Even as a really young girl, I thought, I want to sell the most Girl Scout cookies <laughs> in the whole troop. Right. You know, so I was always a little competitive. I ran track in junior high, and I was always, I love sports. And most mornings, I would get up with my girlfriend at 4 o'clock in the morning before school, Mm -hmm. and we would go water skiing on San Diego Bay. Her dad would take us water skiing with his boat. He said, if you girls learn to get up really early, then I'm going to take you water skiing. And we would water ski early in the mornings because in San Diego, it's so beautiful Mm -hmm. in the summer. And, you know, in the summer months, we were Mm -hmm. still in school. And then... On the weekends, we would water ski all day, every day for like 10 hours That's great. until we wore ourselves out. So as you were growing up and let's say getting into high school years and all that, what did what was your greatest ambition? What did you hope to do with your life? Was there a role model, somebody that was doing what you wanted to be doing? I wanted to be a mom. Always. That's all I thought about was when I was 16, I decided I wanted six kids. <laughs> and I'm not sure why. I just felt like I needed to have, I needed to, I really wanted to find somebody in life that had the same values and felt the same way. And I wanted to have big Christmas Eve parties. And <laughs> I had all these fantasies at a very young age of how I wanted my life to go. So you're 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And how is it that you wind up meeting a man who's a few years older, but ended up becoming your first husband, Robert Kardashian. How did that begin? Well, we always used to go to the Del Mar racetrack. And one day, my girlfriend, Debbie, her mom took us. And we were there with a bunch of friends. And Robert came up to me. He was there with his brother and his dad. And, you know, he had some very crazy line. (laughs) And he asked me for my phone number. And I said, I'm not going to give you my phone number. But he did ask me for my name. And in those days, you could easily find someone's phone number by using their name. And he had his best friend was a girl named Joni. And Joni got him my number because she worked for the phone company. (laughs) So he got my number and started calling me. He lived in Los Angeles. I lived in San Diego. And he just started calling and calling and you know, he figured it out. So now, yeah. there were a few years though that you made him wait before you were married, right? I mean, four years. Four years. And yeah. during those years, you you went off to work. I did. I became an airline stewardess for American Airlines. That was one of my dreams. I thought, well, I'd love to travel, and until I meet Mister Wright, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to work. And throughout that time, though, he was continuing to pursue you? Yeah, he was dating. He started after I met him, he started dating Priscilla Presley and dated Priscilla for a long time. We became just really great friends and we would talk on the phone and he would tell me about, you know, his life and what was going on. And then I kind of was around through their breakup. And then we started dating right after that. So as I understand it, you, how old were you when you got married? Quite young. 22. 22. Mm -hmm. And four kids by 30, Mm -hmm. that obviously on one level fulfilled these dreams of starting to have, have kids of your own. But on the other hand, that's, that all seems to have happened pretty suddenly. How did you respond to such a big change in your life? Well, you got to have a plan. Yeah. And I think that I was up for the challenge and couldn't wait to have kids. So that was probably the most 
satisfying time in my life was just being pregnant, being a mom and enjoying that whole process. And I loved being pregnant. I loved everything about it. I loved from the moment I found out to preparing a nursery and taking my kids to, you know, mommy and me and music classes. And I was the brownie leader and the soccer coach and the room mother and the carpool driver. And I relished in all those years. And I look back on it now and I think, I'm so grateful and blessed I got to do that and just take that period of my life. And, you know, I was pregnant for a decade, (laughs) you know, pretty much, but it was really, really fun. And I think that just raising kids and establishing just traditions and celebrations and being a good mom and I loved being a wife and it was just really exciting. So, you know, today most people start a little later and that they use those 20s years, if not uh, even into their 30s, to to do stupid, you know, kind of carefree things. Did you in any way miss the opportunity to be a little bit wild? I'm sure some of your friends and, and people you knew were waiting a little longer. Was there any part of you that wondered what it would be like the other way as well? No, I think I was sort of cut out for the life that found me and that I desperately wanted. I mean, I still go to bed at nine o'clock. Like my whole life, I've just been an early bird. I'm not much of a party animal. I mean, there's moments, you know, you have fun with your family and friends, but it's something that I've always been more of someone who likes to be a nester, who, I mean, my idea of a really good time would be cleaning one of my kids' rooms and organizing their closets and cleaning their drawers and going through their toys. And I mean, this was like a weekly ritual of just constant. I ran a really large home at a very young age. So I had a lot going on and there was a big responsibility. And I was trying to set an example to my kids Mm -hmm. and, and I was, you know, learning as I went. Right. So I remember one time, the next door neighbor, when we we bought a new house, when we were, we had been married about a year and we bought a beautiful brand new big house behind the Beverly Hills Hotel. And it was just a dream come true. I felt like so blessed. And I remember moving in and the next day the neighbor knocks on the door and I answered the door and he said, is your mom home? (laughs) And I said, no, I'm the mom. I'm the, it's me. Right. You know, so I think that the perception that people had of, you know, who I was, was, you know, a young girl who's trying to figure it out. But in my mind, I was always very stubborn and I thought I had it all figured out. So (laughs) you've talked about how basically around, I guess, 1989, 1990, your, your marriage with Robert came to an end and you had a period there that it sounds like was pretty formative because you had to figure out how to kind of make it on your own as a, in a, in a, just an entrepreneurial sense, right? I mean, it sounds like. Well, it was about three weeks. Yeah. I was single probably three weeks <laughs> from the time that Robert and I were getting divorced till the time I met Bruce Jenner. Okay. And during those three weeks, <laughs> I realized that I was going to be very, very happy by myself. Mm-hmm. I had decided that didn't want to be with anybody else really didn't like the idea of having anybody else as part of my little family. And I had my kids, you know, Robert and I had, you know, joint custody and I had my kids a great deal. And I thought nothing's going to really get in the way of this wonderful little family and this relationship I have with my kids. Mm -hmm. We were having a blast, Mm -hmm. but at the same time I had to figure it out. And I thought, wow, it'll be very interesting. So I knew I really wanted to go to work and do something that I loved. And I just didn't know what it was yet. What was the game plan within that period? Where, like, What would you have done had you not met Bruce? And then how did you meet Bruce? Well, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> and I don't go backwards. Right. So I don't know what I would have done. I'm sure I would have figured it out. Right. But when I met Bruce, Bruce had, you know, $200 in the bank. So it wasn't like this. I just hit the right. husband jackpot <laughs> of all time. And this is going to make my life. You and it know, was just like a blind date or something? Easy street. Yeah. We went on a blind date and really 
just hit it off, thought he was great. And he was very much, he embraced life like I felt the same way I did, like always going and doing. And, you know, we would go snow skiing and water, you know, water skiing. And he was always going on some fabulous physical journey Mm -hmm. with sports. No matter what it was, we would go on these trips with a guy named Marjo Gortner and he would always do, you know, a golf trip or a ski trip to Canada or a water sports trip to Jamaica. I mean, it was always something very exotic and very exciting. So we had a lot of fun. Didn't have a lot of money. Well, and this is where it really gets interesting because I think people, I think they have a, a sense that they know that you're, you're clearly creative and, and entrepreneurial to have made what you've made of, of just really you work with, with your family. Look what, look what you've done. But at that time, it really, the first time you had to apply those skills was with Bruce when you were figuring out. So if he had $200 to his name, but he was somebody who was accomplished, right. What, so what can you do with that? And you really were the driving force behind that, right? I just, you know, when you're backed up against a wall and you have bills to pay and kids to feed, You have to figure it out really fast. And I thought, well, this is going to be very challenging because, you know, he doesn't have any money and he didn't have a lot of things going on for him at the time. And I had to look at, well, what have we got to work with? I went to a a speech he gave at the Century City Plaza Hotel. Oh, yeah, that Regency, yeah. And he gave a speech, I think it was to like the Boy Scouts of America had hired him to go give this presentation. And I sat there and I literally was on the edge of my seat. And I cried and I laughed and it was um, an amazing presentation. And I thought, this guy should be out there giving these speeches everywhere, which he had been doing for years. But, you know, the interest, I think, had dried up a bit. Right. And he really wasn't charging enough for what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of revamped that whole part of his career and his like tried to put some new life into what he had been doing for a long time. And also and, branding, right? I mean, what was super fit with Bruce and Chris Jenner? What was that? Mm-hmm. Well, we started doing, well, first we, we had to sit down. He had no material and there wasn't really internet or any of that. And he had no, no way of getting the word out that he was available to do these speeches. Mm-hmm. And so my assistant, Lisa, and I, we sat down, and I think for weeks we would work until 2 o'clock in the morning, which is a big stretch for me because, I, like I said, <laughs> right. I go to bed at 9. And we started compiling press kits by hand. And we would, you know, take things to like a Kinko's and have things copied and did press kits with pictures. And we wrote a bio, and mm-hmm. we sent, I think, 7,000 by the time wow. we were done to every speaker's bureau wow. in the world. <laughs> and then we had to sit at home and wait for the phone to ring. But and soon it, it did. Going, yeah. So once we did that, we were able to get some traction with his appearances. And he started traveling, going out on the road and doing motivational speeches. And he named his speech, Finding the Champion Within. Mm-hmm. And then right about that time, we started doing infomercials. So he did one, I think his was the first one he did, it was a sunglass infomercial. And then right after that, we did something called the Super Step. Mm -hmm. So it was this little series that turned into Super Fit with Chris and Bruce Jenner. But we did a lot of infomercials with Guthy Ranker, Mm -hmm. and they were very successful. And it really got him some wind behind all the appearances and this and that. So it all worked out really, really well. And we did those for about, I don't know, five years, just one one after the other. Put something up on Instagram or something like they, maybe they posted the uh, footage of it and, and it's, it's, (laughs) it's cute, but I mean the, it really is, I guess maybe the first instance of you effectively serving as a manager as well as a Uh family member. Right. But the first time most people heard the name Kardashian, I guess was on June 17th, 1994 Mm -hmm. when Robert read what was people thought a suicide note, I guess, from OJ at that point. I have to ask, how did he 
know OJ? And how did you know Nicole? Because I know you were very close, right? Yeah, she was one of my best friends. Robert and OJ knew each other from college way back in the day. I mean, they'd met years and years previous. And when I met Robert, I met OJ. So I've known OJ for as long as I knew Robert. So that, you know, that was a very long time. Couple of fun, apparently facts. I just wonder if you can confirm or, or correct if it's not right, but just re- with regard to the that friendship. Is it true OJ visited you guys in the hospital after you gave birth to your first child, Courtney? Yes. Did your kids call them Auntie Nicole and Uncle OJ? Yes. So were you with Nicole when she in New York when she bought some gloves that might have factored into life later on? Yes. Did Nicole suggest to you, and this is obviously not a fun fact, but I mean, did she indicate to you that he was, she felt threatened by him? She did. To the extent that she thought he was potentially... She feared for her life, yeah. And did she, very shortly before, you know, the tragedy happened with her, did you guys were going to see each other, right? The next morning, yeah. So when you found out what had happened, were you just, did you, were you shocked or did you kind of, you knew what had happened? Well, you know, that you're you're in shock. And then I, I think, you know, after that initial shock of what's going on, I just felt like I knew probably what had happened, but. How did this affect things where I know you and Robert were already divorced, but he's, he was very loyal to OJ and you, I think, felt definitely about that. I mean, I was reading one thing where he's kind of even reached, OJ was reaching out to you from jail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, how does that affect things when, when you're not as convinced of his innocence as Robert was? You know, I had to respect Robert. Robert was a very, very good man, very good judgment. He was an attorney and he was OJ's attorney for a period of time back in the day. And he's was always the voice of reason and always somebody that everybody went to for sound advice. And he would always have the answer. You know, you always felt like you were safe with him. And on this particular subject, I felt one way and he felt another. And I, after having so much respect for him for so many years, you just have to still have that same amount of, you know, decency and respect for another human being. I mean, I wasn't, I was very upset that he didn't see it maybe the same way I saw it, but we have four children together. And so that makes a huge difference when you are going through something as tragic as this. Mm -hmm. And he sat down and wrote a letter to me and my children the night before the trial. Wow. And brought it over and said, I just wanted to tell you that, you know, tomorrow's going to be the beginning of a really long journey and read this after I'm gone. And, you know, I hope you'll understand. Now that trial, obviously, you know, we now talk about it as the trial of the century. Mm -hmm. You were there, I believe, every day. And in fact, even while pregnant, right? I Um, was there a lot, but not 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 every day. But but yeah, I mean, seeing that circus of just, you know, what it became, whereas the whole, I think it, it got crazy. That a lot of people think was the beginning of what became sort of a new era of media coverage, the obsession with celebrity, almost like a, a reality TV gone wrong kind of program. What did you take away from seeing that all so up close? The good, the bad, the ugly sides of mm-hmm. it. You learn a lot about human behavior. You learn a lot about people you think you know. You learn a lot about the justice system. You learn a lot about just so many things. And I think that a great deal of it was some amazing lessons learned along the way. Although through tragedy, Mm -hmm. I have to believe that, you know, everything happens for a reason. And somehow we got something out of that. But it definitely was surreal. I think watching it happen every day, we were so close to it. And just it was so sensational that, you know, you really have to have some thick skin and some a good head on your shoulders to get through something like that. So I think for all of us involved, it was so fueled with emotion and energy, good and bad, you know, that it was something that 
I felt like at the end of every day, you just didn't know what was going to come the next day. Mm -hmm. So it was like living on the edge for a really long time. Just to put a bow on that topic, just last two things. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when the verdict came down? Where were you? What did you make of it? Well, I got to the courthouse and Marsha Clark and some of the people that work for her and with her decided it was better for me to be upstairs because I was very pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I sat up there with one of Nicole's sisters, I remember, and with Bruce. And I remember just disbelief, Mm -hmm. disbelief. And then thinking, how are we going to get out of here? It was just, we were kind of scared. And the other part of that last question is that the the child you were pregnant with was... Kendall. Yep. And Kendall's middle name is... There you go. She was named Kendall Nicole after Nicole. So the the next time that I think a lot of people heard the the name Kardashian was around 2006 for when something that I I wonder, you know, I'm sure it, it was not something you were thrilled about, but a tape gets out into the world. What was your reaction as a as a mother to that and just as a you know, on every level? How do you how do you respond to something like that? Well, it's devastating. You know, you don't want to hear that. So, you know, it's nothing that you're ever prepared to deal with. And once again, you just have to, you know, it's your daughter and your family and you have to do the best you can in the situation that you've been dealt. So that's what I did. And not at all endorsing this, but there, you know, there are these conspiracy theorists about everything, like when Kim was just what what she went through in Paris and different things along the way. There are those who suggested that this was some kind of strategic publicity stunt or something. It was a year before the the before you go and met about keeping up with the Kardashians for the first time. Mm-hmm. Can you just I hate to even ask you, but can you just categorically say that's nonsense? Well, it's just of course it's nonsense. And it's the most ridiculous thing that after over you know, a decade, right. twelve, thirteen, whatever it's been, fifteen right years that anybody would still think that that wasn't one of the most horrific things that we as a family went through. And I think that the stupidity and the ignorance Mm -hmm. of people to come up with these (laughs) fictional tales that, you know, haters are going to hate. People are going to come up with the most ridiculous things because, you know, maybe their own lives need a little help. But I think when, you know, I I just was raised, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And if somebody's going through a really bad time and dealing with something like this, then have a little compassion. So I just, you know, I really, to be honest with you, haven't talked about that Mm -hmm. in 10 years because no one's asked. Yeah. And I just find it really offensive. Yeah, I hear you. So before you pitched Keeping Up with the Kardashians for the first time. Had you been a consumer of reality TV? Was there anything you really liked that was in the genre? You know what? There was. It was just starting to become very popular, mm-hmm. reality television. I remember watching the Osbournes, thinking how funny. <laughs> and it was just fascinating to watch somebody at home, like living life in their own house. I thought, wow, that's just fascinating. And I Believe me, I was looking at every piece of marble and the furniture <laughs> thinking, this is wild. It's so beautiful. Right. And, you know, just admiring their house. And I just thought it was fascinating. But over the years, my best friend, Kathy Lee Gifford, mm-hmm. would often say to me, oh, you guys, nobody would even believe your life. You know, it's just wild how many people you know, how many kids you have the craziness that goes on on a daily basis. You need your own reality show. And we would just kind of laugh about it until one night I had a friend over for dinner, Dina Katz, who's the casting director now for Dancing with the Stars. Mm -hmm. She's done that show forever. And she had come over and she was just listening to everything going on, looking around. Kendall and Kylie were wild and and funny and you know everything was happening like it usually does on any Mm -hmm. random night right and she goes this is a reality show nobody would believe what goes on here and what you the life you live she says you know 
you should really go talk to Ryan Seacrest because he's developing some projects. And so I did. And we hit it off. Let me stop you, though, before we go any further there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would hear that and say, I don't know if I want my every move, you know, seen Mm -hmm. by the world. Was there any of that for you or you just thought it would be fun? I never really thought about it. I thought (laughs) this would be such a great thing to do with my kids. And did you guys have sort of a family meeting or something to make sure everybody else was on board with the idea? Well, that came after, like I said, met with Ryan and then he pitched it to the network. Right. And literally less than 30 days later, we were filming and I had to go home and say, guys, (laughs) something's happening, but it's happening really fast. What do you think about doing a reality show? So he was already ready to go on it. And now you had to decide on your end if you guys were all on board. Yeah. And I got everybody on board except for Courtney, who wasn't that thrilled. (laughs) What was her concern? And she just, you know, was more private than the rest of us a little bit and more reserved and didn't really want the implosion. And, you know, she was probably a little more careful than the rest of us. And the rest of us were pretty excited. I told Kendall and Kylie what was going on, although they were young, young, but there wasn't, there wasn't even a question that they would be taken out of school or that their lives would change. If we were filming after school and they happened to be around, then they would be in something. Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't about them. It was called Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. And the network bought the series based on the three girls. Not me, not Bruce, not Kendall, not Kylie, really, but just the three girls. And then my son. Who at various times has had wanted less to do with it. But at the beginning, he was he was. Well, he was much younger. Yeah. Yeah, Now he's working full time and, you know, has a busy life. But back then he was going to college, getting out, you know, graduating and graduated from USC. Mm -hmm. And he is such a great sport. You know, he's just like his dad. So just anything that's going to make everybody happy. So I think the one thing we did discuss at the time was, you know, if we're going to do this, let's just do it really organically let's let it all hang out and let's show who we are because if we start to pretend you know we're not a show that's written we don't have scripts it's literally flying by the seat of our pants (laughs) and what you see is what you get what was the moment when you realized i guess when it when it first went out into the world and you realized that this was going to be a a life-changing thing how do you remember when you first realized that well i think We probably realized that it was going to be a special show when we went right into filming season two with no break. They were like, this show's a hit. And that was before season one had begun to air or? No, season one had had aired or was airing probably a couple episodes in. I can't remember. Right. But we realized this is a big deal and the network likes it a lot. And they've asked us to do season two. And we were like, this is so exciting. We were so excited. And, you know, today the show is in over 167 countries, which to me, when I think about the impact and and the popularity of the show and how much the fans enjoy it, it's so satisfying when I think back on the journey For because sure. it kind of was all meant to be. Well, let's go back to episode one, though. That, that goes on the air did you guys all get together to watch it or did you, I mean, I imagine your things changed pretty immediately, right? So people must have, it didn't take that long for it to become a, a phenomenon. So you're obviously also very involved with the production of it. So I'm sure you'd seen the I'm cut. a producer, right, so of I course. produce no, all of the course. shows. But what I mean yeah. is that you'd, you'd been, a, you'd, it's not like you were seeing it for the first time when it aired. Correct. But the reaction, what was that from people that you knew? The reaction was, it was definitely a success. So that was exciting. And, you know, the people that were close to and that love us, they loved it. You know, they loved seeing it and they loved that the kids were having so much fun. And it was a life-changing moment because it became our full-time job. You know, all the things that we had been doing kind of took a back seat to that 
What so, were each of you doing just before it hit? What was going on for each of the principals? I had a children's clothing store with Courtney and was a manager right. to Bruce. And Courtney and I ran Smooch, which was a successful children's clothing store in Calabasas, mm-hmm. which we loved doing. <laughs> and my mom's had a children's clothing store in La Jolla for 45 right. years. So it was something that was sort of an extension of that. And then the girls opened a store next door called Dash. Mm-hmm. So they had that before we started filming. And they had been working there and Courtney had graduated from, she had gone to SMU and to Arizona State. Mm -hmm. So she graduated from college and Kim was working in fashion and doing closets. And she would have this closet business where she would go and sort of like a stylist, you know, slash closet organizer. Ironically, wasn't one of her clients, one of the few precursors to the card, keeping up with the Kardashians was Paris Hilton and the Simple Life. One of her clients, I guess, was Paris, right? Yes. And well, Kathy Hilton and I have been dear friends for, uh, gosh, the kids are 30, I guess, 37 years. We've known each other since our children were born. So when the kids were babies, they played together. Right. So we've always been family friends. <laughs> That's always. Wow. So when Paris had her show, we were like beyond thrilled mm-hmm. for her because it was so perfect. Right. And Kim actually was on Paris's show a couple of times. Wow. And then, you know, obviously in this business, it's all in the family. I was just telling my mom yesterday, one of the kids' childhood friends, Simone Harouche, they all went to school together and she's my stylist now. Wow. And I've known her since she's a little girl. That's great. So all of all of them grew up together, including Nicole Ritchie. And right. Just all of them went to school together their whole lives. That's great. Yeah. So just for people who wonder the logistics of how Keeping Up With The Kardashians work, do you mm-hmm. wake up and get mic'd? Or like, how does this, is it? Is it all day? Is it certain well, parts of the day? I mean, I am a little vain. So <laughs> I wake up, I get glam, and then I get mic'd. <laughs> so let's not get it twisted. Right, right, right. Yeah, we got to have that glam. Sure. And and then are there cameras that are just here all the time or how does it Uh work? There's cameras here all the time. And then there's handheld cameras. And I probably have, I don't know, 50 cameras in my backyard that are security. Right. Okay. So those are all security. And there's many, many security cameras inside that are places that you'd never think about. Right. And we have a lot of you know, personal security. And then we have the cameras, the television cameras. So between the TV and the security, we're covered. And do you start to just forget they're there or is it something you're always conscious of? I always forget they're there. I think after five minutes, you know, everybody gets here in the morning and we kind of say, hi, what's going on? And what are we having for lunch today? You know, first things first. And this is going on at the homes of each of the participants in the show? Yes. So like Kim wakes up, And there's... It depends on what we're doing. Like, you know, it's just like everything else in life. Things change all the time. But, you know, you never know when you're going to have a change in plan. But typically, we know what we're going to do, where we're going, what we're, you know, what part of town we're going to be in. You give the crew a little bit of an advance heads up so they can plan that? Sometimes not a lot, (laughs) you know, sometimes a day or two in advance. And sometimes if we're going to have a family vacation, obviously it's a month in advance or it's, you know, it's just, it's just like real life. You know, today we're all going over to Courtney's house because there's a birthday party. Mm -hmm. So we all know we're going there and then, you know, on and on and on. But in the next week, I have so many meetings and I'm incredibly busy these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so they, they know my schedule with a bit of an advance notice so that, you know, they can figure out how to torture me and and follow me around. No, are I'm there kidding. ground rules? Kidding. <laughs> are there ground rules like, all right, you don't come into Chris's bedroom or you don't, you don't do this or that. Like, what are the, there's gotta be some restrictions. I think the only restriction is, is the shower and the toilets. <laughs> That's where they, they're always in my bedroom or right. my bathroom or my glam room. Right. Or, you know, they kind of have full access to all of our homes. And what percentage of the footage that is captured, which is obviously there's a lot of it, yes. what percentage of that would you say ends up 
getting used, just to give a sense of how much there well, is. Well, okay, good question. It's a 44-minute show without commercials. So that's less, that's a 45-minute period of time in a 24-hour day. Right. So do the math. Right. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you don't see. Right. And it's a big job. I mean, these editors that work at Buna Murray work really hard mm-hmm. and they have to figure out how to make it interesting and exciting and not mishmash and, you know, make sense to someone who's following our lives. And sometimes it's a little more thought out than others. It's, you know, depending on what, how much material they have and what they have to go through and, you know, and then there'll be, we do probably two cycles a year. Mm-hmm. This year we've done part of 13 and mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have a little bit of a break. Do you feel pressure to be interesting or be dramatic or anything like that? Because I know you say it's not scripted, but not all of our lives would be as exciting enough to exciting enough to merit you know, episodes on the re- on the frequency that you guys put them out. So how does that work? Is there any kind of orchestration without scripting? You know what? There are, I think that the situation that we're in is really the perfect storm. I think that there are so many of us, family mm-hmm. members, right. there's so many boyfriends, spouses, children, <laughs> grandchildren. Right. We couldn't make this shit up. <laughs> You know, there's Courtney giving birth and pulling a baby out of her tummy and marriages and divorces. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And I think that because we allow, you know, our crew and our cameras access to every single thing in our life, it's never a dull moment. (laughs) I mean, we can't get in the stuff that we have to scale it down. Like, what are we going to show? And there's so much drama continually happening in a big family that (laughs) you don't have to make anything up or try to think, what are we going to do next week? Right. To heighten it or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and just to note some of the crazier things that the funny things, I mean, Rob with the Viagra pill that I guess was intended for somebody else, I guess, Kendall and Kylie, when they were quite young using this, this stripper pole that was not meant for them. So some yeah, people. Yeah, that was episode one. Episode one, right? What else? I guess you and your mom getting stoned on on pot laced gummy bears, right? The most amazing night. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, as you say, there's it's not all fun and games. I guess when some of the relationships ended or others began or it's whatever. A lot. Yeah. So who's in the editing room? Who's looking at who's you? You are as obviously we've we've noted and and we'll note in the intro. You're the executive producer, right? Uh-huh. Who else, aside from you, sees this stuff before it goes out? Well, the Buna Murray, right. our production company, and they're amazing. So they sift through and they do the heavy lifting for sure. And then we get to see it after it's pretty. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because we've never taken anything out. Like the choice is there to say, absolutely not, you know, and I think that's another key to the success of the show is that we don't choose to edit ourselves. You know, the the most editing I do is like, oh my God, my hair looks horrible (laughs) from the back. Do we have another angle? Or like who in the world, you know, wouldn't tell me that that dress looked horrible (laughs) on camera. So the little vain, silly things that, you know, we might complain about, but it's never been about anything big and important. Who is watching? We know a lot of people are, but who are these people and why do you think they're so interested? What is it that connects with people? I think that because there's so many of us and so many different age groups and demographics that there's something for everybody. I've always said it's it's interesting because Kylie has her audience, Kendall has her audience, then there's Kim, there's Courtney, Chloe, Rob, myself even and my demographic Kanye. it's and then yeah it's just kanye and scott and just everybody and i think that because there's so many of us and because people have been watching for over a decade you know 14 seasons later we're shooting season 14 right now that i think people got emotionally invested early on mm-hmm. and they realized that This is a family that has its ups and downs, but truly is obsessed with each other and loves each other very much. And I think that that journey is something that 
resonates with everyone who, I mean, at least all the stuff I see. And there's going to be your haters, and that's probably a few percent Mm -hmm. when you look at it as an overall number of what's going on and how many hundreds of millions of followers the girls have, over 167 countries. Yeah. So 167 countries, that's a lot of people watching. And what I realized was I'm from a different generation. Mm -hmm. I'm like vintage. (laughs) So we went to Peru, Kylie and I went to Peru and we were filming the life of Kylie. And this was last month. And I remember watching, I was in the car behind Kylie with my security and shoot and Jordan were in the car in front. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching all these young kids realize it's her because they didn't have tented windows in Peru and they saw her in the car and they started chasing her and the traffic was horrendous. So they would catch up with Mm -hmm. her and there was several hundred people by the time we finished down this road of them coming out of the woodwork chasing Kylie. And I thought, you know, there's not a lot like the village we were in, Mm -hmm. no electricity, not a lot of, you know, water. There was like, it was a very rural part of the country. And I thought, how are these people, they don't even have television. <laughs> right. And then I realized they're all watching it on their phones, right. you know, right. and it dawned on me that this whole digital technical generation that I, you know, don't know as much about as Kylie does. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating to see how many people were so excited to see her in a country that was just a developing country. It's amazing. And yeah. yeah, and that was just a real, I can't explain it because, you know, we don't have enough time, but it was fascinating to me. And I thought this is what's so great is they, the people that are touched by it on some level. Like I've had people say to me and write to us, you know, my mother was in the hospital and she was dying of cancer and she had a week to live and you guys made her laugh. Thank you. And so I've heard that a lot. Yeah. That it just, it's, you know, some people catch a funny one or, you know, or something that means something to them or something they've been through, you know, so I think it's entertaining on a lot of different levels. It sounds like also, and and obviously, while this is a small minority of the people that engage with you guys there, as you say, there are haters out there and they get a louder <laughs> microphone than they used to because of, I guess, social media and things like that. Yeah, How did you definitely a lot of bullies out there? You guys must have had to develop some thick skin. What what's the secret to not only not let it, letting it bother you, but not answering back, which I think is the inclination of most people. You know, my initial reaction to somebody being a hater was to answer back. And in the very beginning, Nobody really knew how to get a hold of us. There wasn't, yeah, you know, there was barely, you know, Twitter. <laughs> I remember Ryan Seacrest calling up Kim going, you might want to look into this thing called Twitter. <laughs> 100 million followers later or whatever it is. Right. Here we are. But yeah, there wasn't Instagram. There wasn't Snapchat. There wasn't any of that. And I remember getting an email from a woman who was so nasty. And I wrote her back and I said, gosh, I'm really sorry that you feel that way. I'm just really trying to do my best, raising my family, praying every night that I, you know, get through the day just like everybody else and just trying to teach my kids the value of work ethic and on and on. By the time the email exchange ended, she asked me if she could work for me. (laughs) And I realized then and there, and I had a couple of those and then I decided answering back isn't a good thing (laughs) because what did I know? My kids were like, mom, what are you doing? Right. So I realized that there's a lot of really, you know, the, the internet is a crazy place. There's a lot of really miserable, unhappy, terrified, angry, bitter, nasty people out there that don't have jobs or are hopeless or, depressed and sad, and they can be a big, fat, important bully by going online and typing a really ugly statement to someone else that they've never even met before that has feelings and a heart. And I thought, wow, what happened to just all, you know, give peace a chance? And (laughs) what happened to the 60s? What's the most hurtful thing somebody said? I don't know that anything for me 
has been, I mean, it stings sometimes when somebody says you're so fat or, you know, you're, you're too old to be on, on social media or you look awful in that. Like such silly, stupid things. You're going, really? Like you kind of second guess, like, you know, I'll call up Kim and go, do I look that bad in that picture? (laughs) You know, do I look fat? I think the most hurtful thing is when people will say, you know, oh, you're just managing your kids that, you know, you're getting money from your children or your family or whatever. I'm thinking, well, hell yeah. I mean, I'm trying to create a business here and nobody has their best interests like I do. And nobody's holding a gun to their head. You know, well, they, I mean, we all love working together and we love our situation. Why don't you go worry about your own situation (laughs) and go get a job yourself, you know, or when people say, if we show something on the internet and people will say, you should be giving money to, you know, somebody who can't afford to eat. And they don't know that, yeah, we do. We give back all the time. We just don't always shout it from the rooftops. So I think that, you know, when people don't know what they're talking about and when people lash out and just are completely clueless and untruthful, that's frustrating more than it hurts. Have there been legitimate criticisms that you hear and you say, you know what, maybe there is something that, and I'm not talking about surface bullshit, like you're Mm -hmm. looking heavy or whatever. None of that. Like, I'll give you an example. One of our guests, I'm not saying it's a a correct example, but an example of a criticism that I I would think about, I have to think about. Mm -hmm. We had Gloria Steinem on this podcast. She had an HBO program or something at the time. And just talk about the state of feminism today, essentially. Mm -hmm. And her thing was, Keeping Up with the Kardashians came up, and she says, quote, it isn't the individuals who are at fault. It's the culture that says you're rewarded for your outsides, not your insides. But I regret it, and it's painful. It's not quite as painful as the housewives, the real housewives, which is perhaps the most painful. It's the closest thing to a female minstrel show that I can imagine. But again, I understand why. Those women are are looking for a way to start their business or get to be known. So it's not to criticize the people who are in the game. It's to change the game. Is there anything to the idea that from a feminist perspective, point of view, let's say, just for the cause of women, is this a positive or is it, or can it be both? Can it be a positive in some respects and negative in others? Or how do you look at, like, do you see yourself as a feminist? Let's start there. I think I see myself as someone who is definitely shouting from the rooftops that women can go out and be and do anything they want to be. And I think that's exciting. I think that when I grew up, um, I was raised by a working mom. And so I learned a lot from her of how to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. But I do think that everyone, men and women alike, there's so much opportunity out there that sometimes it's hard to see through everything going on out there. I just think there's a lot of opportunity. And each person needs to go out and find how to be their best self. And I think that's what I teach my family. You know, my son, my daughters, my grandchildren are going to have a tough time. I've said this before. Mm -hmm. I worry about them because there's a lot of hate and disruption on the internet. A lot of really, you know, the bullying really upsets me. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's awful what someone can say sitting behind a keyboard to really be anonymous and to to destroy someone else's Mm self-esteem. I think it's horrible. And I think that I, I I just wasn't raised like, I can't imagine in a million years getting online and saying something negative or nasty about someone else. It's just like, if you have such ugly thoughts, just keep it to yourself. But you know, if the, if those same people went out, and put that energy into trying to do, you know, better themselves and go find a job or go do whatever's making them so miserable and unhappy that the world would be a much better place. But, you know, I think that what we're doing as a show mm-hmm. and and how that is that a positive or a, a negative, I think it's definitely a positive. I think we show a family that loves each other desperately and that We'll do anything for one another and do anything for the people that we love. And we do a lot for our community and for complete strangers and people around the world. And and I think that that's 
should be an inspiration of encouraging other people to get up and get to work. And even if they don't like the Kardashians or keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever, <laughs> there's no denying that you're a very effective entrepreneurial business person. We're sitting in an office, listeners should know, that is surrounded by magazines celebrating each of your kids. And this didn't happen by accident. So I guess on, on that point, where does the word momager, where did that start? And what does it actually mean? How do you decide with your kids what makes sense as a partnership or a branding thing or an endorsement? What's the overall strategy that you as their momager, you know, kind of abide by? Well, I think it's got to make sense. I think that each one of my kids has a lot of interests and and amazing things about them that they would like to emphasize and be more involved with. And I think that each one of them, you know, I have meetings with my kids all the time and we discuss, I have an upcoming meeting with Kendall to discuss, you know, a gazillion opportunities that she needs to herself decide if it's a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. The most recent one we've done is she's the new face of Adidas mm -hmm. and it's an incredible partnership. It's multi-years that she'll be the face of Adidas. So for the, you know, next few years, she'll be dedicating a certain amount of time to this brand mm -hmm. that she's been wearing since she was born. Mm -hmm. So it's so funny because we went and found, you know, vintage pictures oh, of her funny. and <laughs> stuff like that. So that made total sense because Kendall loves it so much right. and wears it all the time. So when they invited her to, you know, work with them, it, that was an easy yes. But, you know, it's always a discussion, right. you know, so whatever comes her way, you know, she's involved in so many different brands and they just make complete sense, whether it's, you know, she's the face of Veste Lauder yeah. and, you know, she does the Fendi campaign and she's done just everyone from Calvin Klein to, you know, just, you know, Chanel and, and Givenchy and Balmain and it, it all, she loves what she does. So for yeah. her, it's much different than some of the other kids because she's an actual, her career is fashion. Well, and I want to stay on her for a second because She's now, by a lot of measures, the biggest model in the world. That's got to make it's you exciting. pretty proud. You know, it's an amazing thing. And she said that, I guess, Mark Jacobs was the first person yes. in the world to really treat her seriously and respectfully as a model on her own yes. standing. So thankful to him. But I want to ask you about how that began, because it presents a an interesting example of sort of life apart from the brand of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. She said, quote, Mark invited my whole family to that first show. And I was like... I love you guys, but can you please just not come? <laughs> I was trying so hard to be taken seriously. Like, guys, this is not a joke or a stunt. This is what I want to do with my life. I had to prove that I could do it, end of quote, but essentially saying I could do it on my own, mm -hmm. separate from. So mm -hmm. when she had that conversation with you, mm -hmm. what goes through your mind? You, you get that this is the next step, I guess, for each of them, that in order to branch out beyond the show that brought them to everyone's attention – there has to be this sort of separation at some point? Well, Kendall, for as long as I can remember, has always wanted to be a model mm -hmm. and to do so on a big stage. So she had a very specific career in mind, and she was going to go get it. Mm -hmm. And a photographer by the name of Russell James, mm -hmm. he was very influential in helping with Kendall's modeling career because when I realized that Kendall was never going to give up on this dream, we started reaching out to some very influential people that could show her what it might feel like. And Russell is the photographer for Victoria's Secret. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he does a lot of stuff for them. So he was great because he was one of her first photo shoots. And then she was one of the most, the biggest angels in Kendall's career is also Katie Grant. And Katie Grant is the casting director for Mark Jacobs that mm -hmm. year and cast Kendall in that show. And Chris Gay is Kendall's modeling agent in New York and called me and said, you know, Katie loves Kendall and wants her to be in the show. And Mark is excited about it. And that was that was the day that she came walking in his show, 
completely unrecognizable, mm-hmm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. and I'm her mom, mm-hmm. in the middle of the pack. So she didn't open her clothes. She was in with the other girls, and I was watching it live and then started to see all the comments, and I was on the internet looking at and. In the first second that she walked out, the fans were like, there's Kendall Jenner. And I'm like, I cannot recognize Kendall Jenner. How do you recognize? So that was really the beginning of her career. And after that, Ricardo Tichy from Givenchy, the creative director of Givenchy, he embraced her, Olivier Roosting from Balmont. And it just, and and Karl Lagerfeld Mm -hmm. was so amazing. I'm so grateful to him. He just was using her all the time and put her in the Fendi campaign and used her in the Chanel shows. And, you know, you, you set the bar when you're a model. And I think like if you're in a Chanel show in Paris during Paris fashion week, that's kind of like you have arrived, you've made it. And she was there and, and it was really exciting. But as far as not being at that first show, I got it 150%. When she said, I need to go do this, I said, you go. And I was in New York in my hotel room watching it <laughs> right. live on, on right. my laptop. With our last few minutes here, I wonder if we can just do something we call rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind about a few things. Oh. So first of all, you guys are all, I think it's public information, you're a lot more well-known, a lot wealthier than you were when you started this whole enterprise with Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Why do you still do it? What do you need this for? Don't you want a little privacy now? We love working together. (laughs) It's amazing. I get to see them every day. But couldn't you do that without the cameras? No, No. not really. I don't think so. I think you get lazy. Okay. Are the dynamics within the family any different because of the show? Like, is it, do you censor yourself at all? Do you, anything because you know that the whole world's watching? No. It doesn't affect No. <laughs> no. Sometimes, some of my kids have no filter whatsoever. <laughs> Has doing the show made you or your family more guarded or suspicious about other people who now enter your lives and what their motivations might be and things like that? Sure. I think that would be a fair statement. <laughs> yeah. How about from a safety, security kind of point of view? You alluded to this earlier, but you also said in an interview, I think about a month ago, you said, quote, I was sitting here at my desk doing the five million things I needed to do, and a guy walked into my office mm-hmm. right there, and he was an intruder, my my stalker. I mean, that's an insane. I couldn't believe it when I read that. So yeah, horrible. How, from that point of view, is your life different than it was? I guess you said a lot of cameras, a lot of security, mm-hmm. but like, oh, just upped every single part of our lives related to security that every element that you can possibly improve upon, we we did the best mm-hmm. that we can to improve upon those elements. What was the moment you most regretted letting cameras into your lives over these last years that you've been doing it? I don't really have any regrets. That's great. I don't. What do you wish people knew about you that they don't? So perhaps some of these haters, so I understand you don't get engaged with them, but it would be nice if they knew this about you. Maybe they would think differently before they open their mouths or tweet or whatever. Probably that I'm a lot softer than you would imagine. Mm-hmm. We know you've, and you've spoken about this, you're, you're I think, quite religious. Uh, how about politically? What, like, are you following day to day the soap opera that is our country at the moment? Did you vote for one of these folks in 2016? You know, what do you make of that aspect of the real world right now? I am the most non-political person in the universe. So I am not someone who speaks out publicly about my political Mm -hmm. views. However, I know, you know, you've met and worked. I think you guys, I don't know if you would say friends, but you knew, you know, Trump, Mm -hmm. right? I've met him a few times. Yes. But I think, you know, listen, I try to keep up with what's going on. So I'm not living in a, you know, rabbit hole over here. And my girlfriend, Shelly Azoff, makes me subscribe to all these apps on my phone that that give me these notifications constantly. So I'm not some (laughs) political dummy. But yeah, I keep up with it. Yeah. Which of your kids today is living the the life most like the one you would want to be living if you were in their position that they're in having been through this whole show. Who do you connect to basically on, you know, you say whether it's Kendall as a model or it's each of them are doing their own things. Who do you 
see yourself the most of yourself in. Wow. <laughs> well, I think a little bit in everybody. I mean, I, I can relate to Courtney and she's raising all these kids. And then I can re- relate to Kim because she's doing the same thing. And then Chloe is, her and I are very much alike because we love spending a lot of time, like our hobby is our home mm-hmm. and, you know, design and decorating. And I relate to Kylie because we work in the makeup business together every day. Mm-hmm. And Kendall is, I love watching her follow her dream and being the face of La Perla. And, you know, I could go on and on again, Mm -hmm. but I'm so proud of her because she's killing it in the modeling world and working so hard. And then Rob is so, I, I think I can relate to him because he's so excited to be a new dad. And I know what it feels like to be a first time parent. And then he's just working on his sock line and his new clothing brand that'll be coming out soon. And, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of things, but just the way they are as parents is really satisfying and rewarding for me to watch them, you know, watch your babies have babies (laughs) is something else. Right now, it sounds like in in about a month, there's going to be a hearing. Mr. Simpson might get probation. It's possible. I heard that. If he were to get that and reach out to you, and want to resume a friendship, what would your response be? I don't have a crystal ball, but we have some very dear friends in common. So we'll just see how it goes. Sure. And lastly, hopefully this doesn't feel like a too personal question, but obviously it sounds, you've described, read a lot of your other interviews preparing for this. You said that, I I got the sense that in, in a lot of ways, maybe it was at that time, I don't know if it's overall, but Robert, was sounds like a love of your life in yes. a lot of ways, right? If somehow he were to be here for a day and see what's gone on in, in these years since his passing and the amazing and just mind-blowing things that you guys are all now a part of, what, what would he make of it all? He would be really proud of his kids. And yeah. I would thank you as well. Yeah, I, well, I hope so. <laughs> well, I, I thank you very much for doing this very interesting conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. That was really great. <laughs> 